Well, good morning, Southeastern Seminary, Southeastern College. It's good to be with you all uh, this morning. This, this school is, is a special place for me. Uh, I love this school. Even this morning, I went for a walk around campus and just was thinking back on how, how formative my time was here at Southeastern, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. I love the school. I love your faculty. Uh, there are so many men, I, I probably wouldn't even be able to name all of them, but just so grateful for their, their influence, their impact in my life, men like Dr. McKinnon, Dr. McKenzie, Dr. Hammett, Dr. Hildreth, Dr. Robinson, I see you back there, uh, Dr. Shaddix, uh, there, I mean, I could go on and on, Dr. Mosley, who was my pastor for several years, uh, I'm just grateful for this school, I'm grateful for your faculty, and obviously I'm grateful for your president. Uh, it, it is a joy uh, for you to know him as Dr. Aiken, Dr. and, and Mrs. Aiken, but it's a privilege for me to be able to call them mom and dad. And I just want to take the opportunity to congratulate you on 20 years of serving as, as president here. You have honored the Lord. You have made your family proud. And we praise the Lord for all the great things that he has done in and through this place during your time as president. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. If you had the chance to get to know me personally, uh, talk to my family, you would, you would learn pretty quickly that I'm a, a pretty happy, joyful, positive person. And I would say all of that remains true this morning by God's grace. I'm, I'm still happy, still joyful this morning. But, but the Lord has put a, a sobering word on my heart this morning. Uh, my heart is, is heavy as I continue to hear about the ways that Christians around the world are being persecuted and suffering for their faith. And just the last few months, I've heard about Christians in India who have been attacked by Hindu nationalists simply because they chose to follow Jesus. I heard recently about a church in central India that was burned to the ground because that was a place where people gathered to worship and to praise the Lord. But not just India, I've heard even more recently about things that are going on in the country of Nigeria. I just read a report recently that seven weeks ago in northern Nigeria, on Christmas Eve, hundreds of bandits attacked 21 villages and killed over 200 Christians. Timothy, a local believer described it this way, quote, more dead bodies were found in the bush today. My village was attacked on Christmas Eve and other villages close to my community. Many houses were burnt, including my church. I can't say how many people were killed, but we found more dead bodies today and we're looking for more missing ones. Since 2009, over the last 14 years, over 50,000 Christians in Nigeria have been killed. Since 2009, over the last 14 years, 50,000 Christians in Nigeria have been killed. I don't know about you, but sometimes we, we hear these things and we think, well, that's, that's on the other side of the world. That's, that's far away from us. It really isn't that far. You know, I, 
Where I teach in, in Kentucky, I have students in my class from India, from Nigeria. And so we tend to think this, this is on the other side of the world, but this is actually more near to us than we might recognize or realize. And you see, what we, what we learn and what we see in all this is that for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, there is a significant cost for choosing to follow Jesus. There is a cost for choosing to follow Christ. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And I think we find the answer to that question in Matthew chapter 10. I want to set the context before we read. Jesus is commissioning his disciples for mission, and he's telling them what their mission is going to be like, and he gives them some warning signs along the way. Verse 16, he tells them that they're going to face trouble. He says, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He tells them in verse 17 that they're going to face suffering. They're going to be flogged. He tells them in verse 21 that they're going to be betrayed. Brother will betray brother to death. He tells them in verse 22 that they're going to experience hatred. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. And he tells them in verse 23 that they're going to experience persecution when they persecute you in this town. So notice what Jesus is doing here. He's telling his disciples, if you choose to follow me, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be challenge. There's going to be difficulty. And it's in that context that we read Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 34. Matthew writes, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus gives us two truths this morning about what it really means to follow after him. Two truths that I believe have significant implications for my life and truths that I believe have significant implications for your life. Truth number one, if you're taking notes, following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. Following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. Jesus says there in verse 34, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Matthew chapter 10 gives us a, a very different portrait and picture of Jesus than we're used to. Now, we love to hear stories about Jesus saying, hey, you need to love your enemies. We love to hear stories about how he heals the leper. We love to read stories about how he feeds those who are hungry. But the Jesus at, Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 10 is a little bit different. He's very direct, very bold in his language. He holds nothing back. And in fact, I think it's a little bit startling for us to read, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword. Just a few months ago, we were singing songs about how he is the prince of peace, right? Didn't he come to bring peace? Well, in one sense, the answer is yes. 
He came to bring peace between God and humanity, but the peace that he brought was a salvific peace. But we know that right now, the gospel is a stumbling block. We know that those who have chosen to reject Christ, that the gospel is, is a barrier, and it can cause conflict and division. But Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword, and the sword is the gospel. The gospel is the sword because it is a message that brings division. And in particular, Jesus is talking about the conflict and the division between those who choose to follow Christ and those who choose to reject Christ and the gospel. But Jesus goes further and says this conflict, this division, is going to be felt and experienced in the deepest of human relationships in the family itself. Listen again to what he says in verse 35. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, again, we read this, and it sounds a little bit shocking to us, but I don't think I'm telling you anything new this morning. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, when you and your family get together for a special event, a special holiday, a special celebration, what are the things that you tend to talk about? Well, we talk about sports, and we talk about the news, and those of you in this room, you might talk about the newest video you saw on TikTok. We might talk about who has COVID or, you know, anything and everything, but we're not going to talk about Jesus in the gospel. Why? Well, because we know that honest discussions about Jesus in the gospel tend to bring conflict, tend to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Meaningful conversations about Jesus, the Bible, the church, they have the potential to create conflict. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here that conflict within the family is to be expected for those who choose to follow Christ. He then takes it a step further. Listen to verse 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we need to be careful this morning that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not telling us to dislike our family members. Okay, I have parents. I love my parents. I have children. I love my children. So what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus wants us to love our parents. He wants us to love our children. But he demands that we love him more. More than anyone or anything else in this life, Jesus demands that we love him above all else. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, some of you, as we read this text this morning, know exactly what I'm talking about. In a room this size, I'm, I'm guessing there are some of you in the room who maybe had to make this decision at some point in your life. You had to choose, do I, do I follow Christ or do I choose my family? And you were, you were put in a difficult spot where you had to choose faith or family. And this has been true for Christians all the way back to the time of Jesus and the early church. And I want to tell you a quick story that illustrates what Jesus is talking about here. I want to take you back with me about 1,800 years to Carthage, North Africa, modern-day Tunisia. And I want to tell you the story of two young Christian women. Many of you probably have heard this story about Perpetua 
and Felicitas. Perpetua was a, a young woman aged 22. She was educated. She was from an upper-class family there in Carthage. She was also a young wife and a mother. She had an infant son. Perpetua was from the upper-class Felicitas, her servant, was from the lower class. Two women, one upper class, one lower class, both followers of Christ. And as the story goes, Perpetua and Felicitas, Felicitas, who was also pregnant, they were gathered with a group of believers. They were worshiping and praising the Lord when government leaders came in and arrested them for worshiping Jesus. So soon, Perpetua is faced with a dilemma. Renounce Christ and be released or remain committed to Christ, lose her life, leaving her husband, her father, and her infant son in this world. And as you can imagine, her father was devastated by this reality. He came to her and he pled with her to choose family over faith. And this is what he said to her, quote, have pity on my gray hairs, daughter. Have pity on your father, if I'm worthy to be called your father. With my own hands, I tended you like a blossoming flower. I favored you over both of your brothers, so don't cast me aside now to be scorned by men. Think of your brothers, your mother, your son. He won't be able to live without you. Don't be so stubborn, or you're going to destroy us all. Put yourself in her shoes. Feel, feel the weight of the situation, the circumstances. Later, given one last opportunity to recant, Perpetua's father shows up to her public hearing with her baby boy in his arms. He begs her to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor. He says forcefully, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Even the Roman governor tries to persuade her. He says, spare your gray-haired father. Spare your infant son. Just make a sacrifice for the emperor's well-being. And as you can imagine, this would have been a very intense and emotional scene. Perpetua is forced to decide between her family or her faith. And she's experiencing what Jesus talked about here in Matthew chapter 10. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And as the story goes, Perpetua, after hearing her father plead, after seeing her baby boy, after hearing the appeal of the governor, Perpetua was unmoved, resolved, counting the cost she chose to follow Christ. Felicitas, who was with her, made the exact same decision. And according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, in March of 205, Perpetua, Felicitas, and several other Christians were marched into the Carthage Amphitheater to be torn apart by wild beasts and to be killed with the sword. You can travel to North Africa, to Tunisia today, and you can see the amphitheater, the ruins of the amphitheater where all of this took place, a very graphic and gut-wrenching story that expresses exactly what Jesus is saying 
to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, you want to be my disciples? If you really want to follow after me, then your love and devotion to me must surpass your love and devotion to anyone or anything else. Jesus is saying, I I want you to love your father and mother, but I want you to love me more. I want you to love your husband or your wife, but I want you to love me more. I want you to love your son or your daughter, but I want you to love me more. Jesus demands absolute allegiance. You see, Jesus is not after outward ritual here. He's not interested in seeing people go through the religious motions. Jesus is after our hearts. Jesus wants our lives. So Southeastern Seminary and College, I ask you this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love him more than anyone or anything else in this life? Truth number one, following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. Truth number two, following Jesus requires dying to yourself. Requires dying to yourself. Jesus says in verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus here moves from the family to the individual, to the self. And he makes it even more personal, more direct. He says, take up your cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, to be clear this morning, it does not mean that we as followers of Christ should go and try to get ourselves killed. Christianity does not teach salvation by martyrdom. It never tells us that we're to go looking for trouble. But what Jesus is calling for here is a loyalty and devotion to him that is so significant, so intense, that if we were called to make the ultimate sacrifice, we would be willing to do it. This is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When we chose to follow Christ, we chose to die to ourselves, die to our agenda, to our plans. And I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not preaching at you. I'm just as much preaching at myself. I need to hear this word just as much as anyone else in the room this morning. When we chose to follow Christ, we chose to let go of the reins. My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. Sometimes I'll meet people, students, who have their life all planned out. And maybe you're the, the planning type. I respect you, and in some ways I envy you because I'm not the planning type, and it drives my wife crazy. She is the planning type. But sometimes I'll meet people who have a one-year, a three-year, a five-year, and a 10-year plan. We are servants of the king. He alone determines the course and direction of our lives. When we chose to follow Christ, we chose to let go of our plans. God is the one who determines where we go, when we go, and how we go. And the good news this morning is that he wants to use you in his grand plan. 
He wants to use you in his mission of redemption. This is the point of our lives. This is the reason that we have breath. Every person in this room, God wants to use you. God has a plan for you. Don't miss that. I don't know what God has planned for your life. I don't know how God wants to use you in his mission of redemption. It may be that he wants to use you right here in the RDU area. We don't have to go far from this campus to know that there's real need in this community, in this city, in this state. It may be that God wants to to keep you here to be a witness and testimony for him in this place. It may be that God wants to send you to an urban center in North America. He may want to send you to Atlanta or Miami or Los Angeles. It may be that God has plans to send you internationally. We, we prayed earlier uh, for Wes and his family. It may be that God has something like that in store for you. Maybe he wants to send you to a place like Turkey. 80 million people, less than 7,000 Christians. Maybe he wants to send you to a place like Japan, 125 million people, less than 1% evangelical. Maybe he wants to send you to Africa or South America or Asia. I don't know what God has for you. But I do know that it all begins with dying to yourself. The starting point is dying to yourself. I could go person by person, row by row, seat by seat in this chapel, look each one of you in the eye and say, I have no idea what God has called you to do. I have no idea what God's plan is for you, but I do know where it starts. And it begins with dying to yourself. Now that doesn't make sense to us, but that's how the kingdom of God works. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 39. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me We'll find it. This, was, this story, this passage, reminds me of a young man named Philip. Philip was born in the northwest of the United States. He ended up going to college, and while he was at college, began to develop a passion for God's mission, God's purpose in the world. And so he graduates from college, and he and a friend get on a boat, and they sail to South America to go to the jungles of South America to do ministry in this context. And as Philip gets there, he pretty quickly starts working and learning, and he hears about an uncontacted tribe deep in the heart of the jungle. He doesn't really know much about them, but he hears that they're a warrior tribe, that they're a fierce tribe, that they're very hostile to the outside world and very violent to foreigners. And so Philip, after weeks of praying and planning and preparing, he and a couple of his friends decide we're going to make contact with these people deep in the jungle. The initial meetings are cordial, and they're encouraged at what they see the Lord doing. Encouraged by these friendly encounters, they say, hey, you know what? Let's make more plans to establish more presence in this location. What they don't know is while they're making those plans, that the majority is that the majority of the tribe in the jungle actually is very suspicious of them and actually has plans to harm them. And so one day Philip and his friends make contact with the tribe and as they're standing there, they are ambushed by a group of men who come out of the jungle with spears. And on January 8, 1956, Philip 
and his four companions were speared to death by this tribe in a South American jungle. The tragedy of this story is that Philip and the four other men that were with him all had wives and children who were waiting for them to come home. Imagine the circumstances. Wives, mothers, children who are waiting for dad to come home, but dad never shows up. Many of you know this story is about the life and death of a man named Philip James Elliot. Most of us know him today as missionary and martyr Jim Elliot. I named my middle son, uh, my oldest son, his middle name is Elliot after Jim and his, his impact on my life. Raise your hand in the room if you're under the age of 30. Overwhelmingly half of the room. Jim was 29 years old when he died. We hear this story and we think, what a tragedy. What a sad story. And certainly there is some sadness to the story, but the good news is that God used this seemingly tragic situation to bring many people from this tribe to saving faith in Christ. You know the story. After his death, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, and some of the other women stayed behind. And they labored among this tribe, and many people came to faith in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of earthly death leading to eternal life. And in his journal, while he was in college, Jim once wrote these words. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you this morning that we are the exception and not the rule. For most of our brothers and sisters around the world, choosing Christ comes at great cost. And we can often be insulated and isolated from some of those realities, and we think that casual, comfortable Christianity is the norm. We fool ourselves. We believe this, this myth, this, this lie, that you can follow Christ on your own terms. If I don't feel like reading my Bible, who cares? If I don't feel like praying, what does it matter? If I want to skip church for a week or two, it's really not that big of a deal. Who's even going to know anyway? If I want to live like the world, as long as I go to church and I go through the motions, everything's going to be okay. Friends, we're deceiving ourselves. Jesus in Matthew 7, just a couple of chapters back, warns us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe this is one of the most frightening texts in all of the Bible. When we read our Bibles, we see no pictures of casual, comfortable Christianity. Jesus says, you want to follow me? It's a call to die to yourself. And I can't think of a more countercultural statement in our culture today than dying to yourself. We're told by everyone in the culture around us, no, 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 no. You should express yourself. Be who you truly are. Treat yourself. Advance yourself. Promote yourself. 
All of this is me-centered, self-centered individualism. Jesus comes along and says, you want to follow me? Forget yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. This is very strong and direct language from Jesus here. But think about the audience that he's speaking to. His disciples. Were his words just exaggeration or symbolism? Do you know what happened to the disciples? We often talk a lot about the disciples, who they were before they met Christ. We talk some about their earthly ministry, but we don't often talk about the end of their lives. According to tradition, here's what happened to Jesus' disciples. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by the sword. Mark died in Egypt, being dragged through the street by a horse. Luke hanged in Greece after preaching the gospel. John boiled in hot oil, survived, later died in old age. James, the brother of John, beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. James, the brother of Jesus, thrown off the top of the temple, survived, beaten to death by clubs. Bartholomew burned alive and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas, stabbed by spears in India, thrown into a fire. Jude, crucified on a cross, pierced with arrows. Matthias, stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded. Paul, tortured and beheaded in Rome. Friends, following Jesus is not a game. Lord, wake us up. Wake us up to see what does it really mean to follow Christ? What happens when the Taliban comes knocking at your door? What do you do when being a Christian means being fired from your job? What do you do when a, when a family member says, you choose to follow Christ, then we're done. I'm abandoning you. What do you do when the government comes into your church and tries to shut your church down and says, if you don't stop, we're going to be putting you in prison? You see, these are not if questions. These are when questions. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Matthew 10 says it requires absolute allegiance and it requires dying to yourself. Now, as we conclude this morning, if you're like me and you hear these words from Jesus, you immediately feel a little bit inadequate. <laughs> Maybe you read these words from Jesus and you feel a little bit disoriented. You feel like, man, I can't measure up to that standard. And, and maybe you feel a little bit like you're a failure as a Christian. And I would tell you, you're not alone. I think if all of us are honest in this room this morning, we all feel like we, we can't do this. We all feel like we really can't follow Jesus in this way. And the reality is you and I alone cannot do this. We are unable to meet his expectation here. But brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. Through the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can follow Jesus in this way. When Jesus saved us, he gave us a new heart. He gave us his spirit. He made us a new creation in Christ. And so we can live for Jesus in our jobs, in our workplace, in our families, in our communities. The beauty of the Christian life is that we never live the Christian life alone. He promises us in the Great Commission, and I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This is good news. Christ is with us through his spirit. So I want to encourage you this morning to follow Jesus in faith. Follow Jesus in faith. Don't put your faith, your hope in yourself. Don't put it in a a mom or a dad or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. Don't put your hope in, in possessions or comfort or security. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in what he did for you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment, the judgment that you and I deserved. And in the resurrection, he demonstrated victory over that. He demonstrates victory over sin and death. Jesus did it. He accomplished what we could not accomplish. Fix your eyes on Christ today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Christ is calling us to this today. As I I close, I'm reminded of a, a story that an old Baptist preacher tells about a group of missionaries getting on a boat to go to Africa. And as the story goes, these these missionaries are getting on this boat, and they're getting ready to set sail to go to Africa to tell people about Christ. And as they're getting on the boat, the captain kind of looks at them and in kind of a a mocking way, just kind of laughs and thinks, man, what are they doing? And eventually he says to one of the missionaries, what are you doing? Why are you going to Africa? You know that you're only going to die over there. And one of the missionaries looks back at the captain and says, Captain, we all died a long time ago. This is the call of the Christian life. A call to live, a call to die, a call to serve the Lord wherever he calls us until he returns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. What a, what a gift, what a treasure. Preserved, passed down from generation to generation. Translated in a way that we can read and understand. Thank you for the way that your word teaches us, the way that it instructs us, the way that it convicts us and encourages us. The way that it cuts us to the heart. Father, I thank you for these students. I thank you for this school. I thank you for the churches that are represented in the room today. Father, as we consider these words, I pray that you would renew in us a love for Jesus. Whether somebody in this room right now is on the the top of the mountain or they're down in the depths of the valley, Lord, you know what's going on. And I pray that you would refresh us Renew us. That more than anything or anyone else in this life, that we would choose to live our lives for you. Lord, that you would remove any idols in our lives that are getting in the way of us following Christ. I pray today that we would be men and women of faith. Not faith in our own strength or in our own abilities, but faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and faith in his second coming. Father, we pray the same today for our brothers and sisters around the world. Those in India and Nigeria and Afghanistan and Cuba and everywhere else in between. We pray today that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, 
that they would sense and know your presence with them, that you would give them a peace and a boldness and a confidence that can only come from you. Father, today we ask that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, shape and form us more into the image of Christ. In all things, we pray that you would find us faithful and that you would use us for your redemptive purposes in the world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.